Welcome to the Restaurant Boiler Room, Season 4, Episode 5. I'm your host, Rick Ormsby, Managing Director at Unbridled Capital. Today, in the Boiler Room, the Unbridled team will be talking about the state of the franchise M&A market over the first two quarters of 2022. A lot has changed as the robust M&A environment hits some significant headwinds with higher commodities, continued labor pressures, and rising interest rates. Tune in to get a perspective on how this is affecting brands differently, how long it will last, and how to think about supply and demand in terms of deal flow and buyers in the market right now. The Restaurant Boiler Room is a one-stop shop for multi-million dollar merger and acquisition activity and financial complexities affecting the franchise restaurant industry. We talk money, deals, valuations, and risk. Delivered to the front door of franchisees, private equity firms, family offices, large investors, and franchisors on a monthly basis. Feel free to find our content at Unbridled Capital's website at www.unbridledcapital.com. Now, let's enter the boiler room. We're going to be talking about just I've got uh, Derek Ball and Tony Patroon in here, and the three of us are just going to go through probably 15 questions and just chat a little bit and give you some updates on kind of what we're seeing in the MA market over the past probably four or five months, which I think is kind of a meaningful shift from what we saw uh, towards the end of 2021 when everyone was just crazy busy trying to get deals closed. So hopefully you'll find it interesting. For all those people who will listen to this on podcast, I just want to say a big welcome and thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy the content and thank you guys and gals who have joined via webinar today. While we wait a couple of minutes, I've got a couple of just one kind of major announcement. Bear with me. It takes a little minute to kind of unravel it, but you know, one of the things when I started Unbridled, I always wanted to do was to make sure we were uh, giving back both with our time when we can, but but obviously with our uh, money too, uh, to charitable causes. And over the past five years or so, Unbridled has given back, you know, right at a quarter of a million dollars or so in uh, various to various charities. Most of the time, it's been to the restaurant brands and the foundations of the restaurant brands and the deals that we close. But last year, I uh, you know, uh, we picked up the Blue Angels Fund which works in concert with the Wounded Warrior Project to provide uh, resources, you know, in and outpatient resources for uh, our veterans and our heroes as they come back from war. A lot of them have PTSD. So specifically, that's one of the areas that they really focus on. My brothers, as many of you may know, both fought in in Afghanistan and Iraq and, and struggled from PTSD. And so it's an area that's kind of important one for me and I feel strongly about it. And so we support that that now when we close deals. And also we're going to do a little fun thing. And maybe Derek and Tony, you don't know about this yet, but uh, Unbridled, our name comes from a derby winning horse in 1990, horse number seven in the derby. And it's the only horse to have sired a derby winner and then been the grandfather of a derby winner. So Unbridled sired Grindstone, who won the 96 derby. And then Grindstone sired American Pharaoh, who won the Triple Crown. Pretty cool story, right? Anyway, starting this year, we're going to say if in the Derby, the number seven horse wins, we're going to give $10,000 to the Blue Angels Fund. And if the number seven horse, which is unbridled in 1990, places, we'll get $5,000. And if it shows, we'll give $3,000. And if nothing happens, we'll give a, a $2,000 donation to the Blue Angels Fund just for a little bit of fun to, to support a good cause too. So for those of you who are watching, if you're Derby fans, be watching for horse number seven. And uh, I hope horse number seven wins. So, so Blue Angels Funds gets a big donation. And if you want to join along, all you got to do is email me and I can get you the information. It's a really cool cause. It's called the, the Blue Angels Fund. So uh, with that being said, I guess here we go. 
I've got 15 questions today and hopefully we'll just bang through them and spend like four or five minutes on each question, you know, three or four minutes on each question. Question number one, you guys just jump in and I'll look down here as I read some of these. So, so uh, it's called, uh, okay. Number 2022 M and a updates so far, any general comments from the deals that you guys have been looking at and the trends you've noticed uh, fire away. I, I'll just jump in. This is Tony here. I definitely noticed a strong contrast from where we were last year in terms of deal flow. But, you know, I have some people call us and say, okay, well, is it, you know, 25 or 50% of what it was at peak, which I would say is 2021. I would say this feels more like 2018, 2019, and 2020 kind of all averaged together. So it's not as if things have come to a complete trickle. It just feels like a normal M&A year. And there's probably the argument to be made that with the as much volume that went through in 2021, we probably borrowed from some of the future transactions that would have occurred and just dragged them forward a bit. And so there's a little bit of a lull, but overall, that's my take. What do you say, Derek? Yeah, no, I agree. It's been a fairly slow first few months of the year, as I'm sure anybody on the call who's getting email distributions from us and anybody else in the industry, it's been a little slower. I think it's picking up just in the last two to three weeks. The amount of inbound calls that we've been getting from potential clients, I think, has drastically increased. Tony and Rick, I think, would agree. It's not going to be 2021, but it'll be a normal overall m year. I don't think it's going to be slow. It's not going to be too busy. It'll be it'll be within probably 10% of just a normal year. There's a little bit more uncertainty this year than a, than a normal m a year with all the stuff going on in the world. But uh other than that, you can expect just a pretty average deal flow, I think, for the rest of the year. I was taking guys, I, you know, I like the idea of borrowing from 2021, Tony. I agree with that too. There has been some borrowing of deal flow from 2021. I just counted up our deals. So you guys won't know this until I tell you. You'll directionally know this, but we had at this time last year, on this specific day of last year, we had 23 assignments and 19 potential assignments that we were chasing. Right now, we have 14 active assignments and 10 assignments that we're chasing. So, you know, if you just add all that together, the deal flow so far this year is probably would be more than half, but less than two thirds of last year at this point, which again, I mean, we're going to talk more about this as the webinar goes on, but it shouldn't be a surprise. I mean, we probably borrowed 20 to 25 percent of that, you know, back in 2021. And then we've had some things that have happened this year, particularly a really slow start to the year with Omicron that kind of slowed things down a little bit. And I've said it in a couple of the podcasts, but um, it's almost like we needed a thawing of sorts in the industry before the activity picked back up. That's one of the reasons. So, yeah, I definitely agree with you guys. And we'll jump into question number two. Shameless Uh, plug real quick. I I think if I recall correctly, Rick, those 24 deals we had in April of last year, I believe we closed all 24 of those, right? I did look and see. I, I glanced at it. I think it. I looked at this about a month ago. So 100% of the deals I believe we had of those 24 last year were closed, which is in a year like that, I would say fairly impressive. Hey, you trying to say that we're good M&A advisors, Derek? Or what are you trying, are you trying to brag? What are you trying to do, man? Come on. Shameless plug, as I said. That's cool though. Facts. Facts are cool for sure. Thanks for bringing that up. Well, the second question might a little bit might be a little bit like the first, which is what does deal flow look like right now? So take a different spin and answer that question, guys. What do you think? Like we said, first few months of the year was a little slower. We're still uh, 
got some great transactions. Like, like Rick said, we have 14 deals. That's a good, good, normal deal flow. And, you know, our goal is, of course, representing those clients and getting those deals done. The first few months of the year, you know, rolling over 2021, a lot of franchisees were seeing negative comps and, and thinking it wasn't the greatest time to sell. But we're seeing just in the last few weeks, I bet our inbound calls, Rick, have probably doubled just based on mm-hmm. our loose conversations about what's going on. It's probably doubled. So it'll take a month or two for those deals to start hit, hitting the market. But my guess is by the summertime into May, June, July, you'll start to see a little bit more deal flow, especially, you know, P2 through P5, give or take a period of 21 or kind of record period. So once we start kind of trending off of those P&Ls level out a little bit, you'll see franchisees maybe thinking it's a better time to sell, less uncertainty anyway of not having to deal with potential declining comps during the deal. So I think you'll see you'll see M&A pick up. Outside of other potential factors that that impact the rest of the year, obviously, if we just stay where we are now, I think we'll see them and they pick up for the next few quarters. Keep in mind, I'm probably batting less than 500 on my future predictions over the last two years. So yeah, could yeah. what I say with a grain of salt. It's like throw it on a dartboard and you would have been right or wrong. It's almost weird. I mean, I look back at all the things I've said and, and you know, who would have predicted some of the things that happened. So I've been wrong more than I've been right half the time. How about that? I agree with you. I would say that a lot of our deal flow has been uh, so far to date this year. Some of it's been kind of drag into 2022 from 2021 where deals you know felt like at the end of the year right mansion stood up and said i'm not going to vote for tax increases so that kind of got taken off the table from a cap gains tax perspective and so those deals then comfortably started sliding into 2021 so we had a little bit of that effect happening as we started 2022 i think also some brands that have been performing really well namely taco bell that still has you know, strong comps and decent EBITDA, you know, kind of comp, you know, EBITDA on a, on a, a period by period basis over last year. Those deals have continued to come forward and have actually kind of the pricing has gotten more crazy. But some of the brands that have had more of the comp issues or have seen kind of a big COVID kind of sales adjustment and down from a downward perspective, those types of deals have have in those brands have kind of gone a little bit quiet over the last two or three months, as you might expect, as you might expect. Tony, why don't you take the next one here, which is buyer and seller sentiment? What's going through their minds right now as we're doing deals in April of 2022? Yeah, I think uh, the elephant in the room is the COVID comp gains, right? You've got some brands who've grown 30, 40 percent in sales in a normal year for our spaces, you know, two or three percent a year, a nice clip. That is success. And so it's introduced a lot of noise and transactions. I think anyone on this call and anyone listening who's in the M&A space can relate. Can you imagine acquiring a business that's gone through that type of lift and then taking it over and wondering where it's going to level out? So there's definitely been an implication. I think the buyers overall, there's still a ton of demand, still a lot of interest in the space. Bond market is uh, yields are kind of deteriorating and pricing is going the same way. Stock market's still quite uncertain as to what's going to happen and how we're going to respond to natural gas prices, oil prices, the conflict in Ukraine. We still see quite a bit of demand. I think the overall sentiment on the buyer side is still high. I think people are being a little bit more discerning, possibly, I would say, in some of the brands that have been really beaten up by COVID, positively or negatively. But broadly speaking, we still feel like demand is untouched from where it was last year. On the seller side, I mean, we got to talk about this too. The sellers are just whooped. They've managed through a lot of headache 
the last six, eight months, and even if you want to go back to the start of the pandemic, they've gone from stimulus, change in presidency, different administration, potential tax policy, now inflation, labor shortages. I mean, I can go on, right? Some of these things these people would experience in a decade has been kind of compressed into a really short period of time. So I think a lot of sellers are quite exhausted. The good news is they've made a lot of money, made more money than they probably ever have running these stores, but at a cost of probably working the hardest than they ever have in their entire lives. And so we're seeing a lot of people who don't have maybe a second generation in place who are looking out at the next five years and saying, you know what, I've put a lot of money away. My situation personally and financially is quite well right now. Do I really need to keep fighting this battle? And, you know, there's a lot of headwinds coming. It's a little bit mixed, but I'd say it's still pretty strong on the uh, demand side for sure. We had a question that popped up. So, Derek, you take it. And the question, I mean, it's got it's a multi-part question. I love it. Uh, one of them is how these deals have, have you seen bid ask spread gaps when the numbers come in? And, and I guess now's the time to kind of talk through that as we talk about buyer and seller sentiment. I'll make the comment supply and demand, right? That's always economics 101. Tony, you touched on it. Demand to me seems to be from buyers in the marketplace seems to be 85%, 90% of what it was. It's close to what it was in 2021. There are big groups that have digested big, big acquisitions that are pausing, especially if they bought in brands that have had a little bit of performance issue in the first or second quarter of this year. But I'd say largely Tony's right. I mean, the demand is there. I mean, we just took a you know, a KFC business of only 10 units, you know, and had like nine offers on it. Like, so the demand's there. It's the supply. And we'll talk a little bit more about this, but, you know, it's like in this business, you never really had to time things so carefully and so closely. Like you're saying, it's been a crazy time with COVID and values coming up and down and all these external things. I guess the comment I would make is just that with things moving so quickly, sellers are now kind of over the crest of the wave a little bit. You know, in most brands' valuations, whether it's the multiple of EBITDA, and we'll talk more about this, or the EBITDA itself, or the combination of the two, are down over where they were in the end of Q3 or beginning of Q4, whenever that was, in the latter part of last year. And that is indeed, in many cases, creating in many brands a situation where the pricing has come down some. And make sure you, you answer this question too, but I would just make the comment that like, it's been a good run. I was just penciling a little number here on a, just a single store example back in 2017. And listen to this. If you take the, if this is a single store, sales in the store, we're doing a million two. The business we thought was worth about 400,000, the real estate, a million three, and the overall enterprise was worth $1.7 million in 2017. Okay. That was a combination of EBITDA multiples and cap rates and EBITDA and all the assumptions that we make to build into these, these stores. Mid 2021, the store did a million four in sales. The business value we said was a million, the real estate a million seven fifty, and the overall value two point seven five million dollars, which is over a million dollars higher than 2017. If we project in this case Q2 trailing 12-month financials in 2022, the sales are a million three fifty, the business is worth eight hundred thousand, the real estate's worth one point six five million, and the overall enterprise is worth two point four five million in this case, okay. So in this case, within the last six months, the valuations dropped 11%. But in the last four and a half years, the business the enterprise value is up 45%. So it was up 55% last year and still up 45%. And if you're a, if you're a operator has been around for 30 years, don't there ain't no shame in having missed the very crest of the wave, but like taking the next best opportunity. 
you know, you're still up in this case, 45% in the value of your company over just four short years ago, maybe four and a half short years ago. I think that's maybe what we're talking about a little bit. Any comments, Derek, you got any comments on that? Just to summarize Rick's comment is if you're thinking about selling, you think you've missed the boat, you haven't. You might not be at 100%, you know, of 2021 value, but you're still significantly above pre-COVID numbers. You know, short and sweet answer, that's it. Is it's, it's still a good time to sell. You still have a lot of buyers out there. You know, Tony answered the question, I think, really well. You know, buyers are being more discerning about the future, a little bit more cautious about the price they're willing to pay. They're still paying strong prices. But maybe that's tapering very, very, very slightly. Well, Derek, in your specific example is we just ran a process two days ago or three days ago, right? Where we had first round offers and then we had second round. And, you know, and we had, you know, like one of the buyers dropped out during the second round because of maybe some of the issues related to what they thought the future might be difficult and may change their view. So that's maybe an example of of how, not in every instance, but you started to see I mean, that was the first time I kind of seen that in a while. It's, maybe it's isolated. So in terms of the question here, though, the, how many deals have you seen where the bid-ask gaps are out with new numbers coming in? So you know, I've told this to several people over the last couple of months. I think you'll see that throughout the year. Our goal at Bridal is going to be to not be on that. We want to give people realistic valuations. We want to always exceed our valuation to give a client. You know, our goal is to look at what the buyers are doing tell sellers what we truly think they can get. And if they don't think what we're telling them is high enough, then go elsewhere. We're not going to try and lock you up for a year and a half if we don't think we can get you a result. So I actually do think you will see quite a few deals this year where the bid-ask range are, are out of whack. And you'll have a seller who wants to sell at 2021 pricing with lower results. And and our goal is to not be on those deals. Obviously, there's always a, a, a fine line to play in this industry. But I think you'll see a lot of deals get marketed this year that don't end up closing, Mike, simply because of what you just said. I think there will be a bit of a, a gap there. So our goal is to always set expectations with the seller and, and what we truly think the market can play. And that's why out of 24 deals last year in April, we closed all 24. of them. That, that is our goal, to close 100% of our deals. And we're always darn close to that. You also... Had, had asked if we predict any softening of multiples. You know, I wouldn't be surprised. We haven't seen it yet, but keep in mind, deal flow has been a little bit slow this year. So we don't have 30 deals to compare that question to. I wouldn't be surprised to see multiples soften a little bit. If you've got a business that's doing six times, maybe it's maybe it drops to five, seven, five. It's not going to crater. We're not going to go from six to five or anything like that. I could see multiple softening a little bit if comps remain not great. But keep in mind, I think after about P5, we'll start to see better comps and we'll get the really strong P2 through P5 of 2021 out of the P&Ls. And then we'll see more flat, potentially even up comps. Right now, you know, with commodities and, and inflation as fast as it is, growing as fast as it is, you know, people have not quite been able to price accordingly. People are pricing right now. Everybody's taking pricing right now, but it's not you know, if inflation's eight and a half and your price is three, you know, obviously there's a there's a gap there. So I think by the end of the year, you'll see EBITDA and, and margins start to improve from what they are immediately. If you're looking at say P3 or P2 or P4, um, I think you'll see that improve quite a bit throughout the rest of the year. But I wouldn't be surprised to see multiple soften a little bit, but we haven't seen it yet simply because we haven't had a ton of deals on the market during Q1. 
What say you, Tony? Run rate, EBITDA, multiples, that kind of stuff. And what, yeah, so what's that? I, we were talking about, you gave an instance a couple of days ago where we had uh, one of the two parties in the second round process or one of a handful of parties walk away. I'd say the counterpoint to that is our strategic buyers are seeing right through all this stuff, right? You've got people who are discerning, sure. But we had another second round process recently where we took a group of people to a second round. One of the prerequisites to being selected was the removal of a mechanism to reprice the deal. Given the headwinds coming, we felt like it was the right thing to do. And we had one of the parties say, you know what, you're right. We won't reprice this deal no matter what comes our way because we're looking out 10, 15 years plus. And, you know, Derek, you coined it, so I'm going to run with it. Shameless plug here. I think that's why you want to hire an advisor like us. We make a market for you, but we also find the buyers who can generate those kind of terms in a period of this kind of uncertainty, right? You know, if I look at that point and I counter it with also what we saw in another deal, buyers are certainly being a little bit more discerning. But I would also say that um, there's some nuances there. The strategic buyers are able to see through this and quietly in the conversations I've had, I think a lot of people view the second half of the year as being more promising. To Derek's point, I keep hearing a lot of people and even the franchisors saying that they think they've priced their way out of commodity risk. Labor is a little bit more dicey, but with the prices and increases that they're seeing around themselves as, as hourly employees and crew, I've heard some operators saying that they're starting to see people come back. Now, it's, it's a small amount of people. It's not a groundswell, but that's a sign of what's more to come. I think the back half of the year is going to be really great for EBITDA and deal making. Yeah, I've just come back from a couple of conventions in the last couple of weeks, really. And I can tell you that just from a broad perspective, the word on the street is it's going to be a tough couple of five periods or six periods until we get past the full impact of the COVID roll. But then the back half of the year looks, you know, there's a lot of franchisors that are really, really excited about what's going to happen or what they think will happen in the back half of the year, even adjusting for inflation. And at the end of the day, restaurant companies, it's about the quality of the food and service, right? And so a lot of these brands have like, um, at least that I've noticed, are bringing new products to test and new ideas and new products and new delivery mechanisms to bear in the fall timeframe of this year, potentially. And those are the kinds of things that create noise and create uh, awareness and bring trial to the stores and can bring people in to try products at higher price points and, you know, higher margins. You know, my concern, and I think you guys probably have it too, I eat at a lot of fast food because it's part of the job and it's part of who I am. The prices have gotten pretty high, haven't they? That worries me a little bit. I, you know, I just got back on a, I've been to eight states in the last eight days. That's a lot of states. So I've eaten a lot of fast food. And uh, it's hard to get out of a fast food line under $10 now, even in the good old South. So I think that's something to keep a watch on. But I think, Derek, I want to go back to you here. And this is a little bit off script, but think about what happens. And the notorious example would be wing prices, how they fluctuate so incredibly. But we're seeing a lot of wing deflation right now. And pricing really doesn't go down much or at all once an operator's commodities drop. So someone who might buy a business like this over the medium term, once commodities adjust, and this may be a while, uh, maybe in a situation a year or two from now where they have just an incredible balance sheet and, great, and strong EBITDA, great income statements. What say you about that? Yeah, and that fits in with somebody's question that they put up a couple minutes ago about margin compression. And look, like I said a little bit ago, don't... I'm not Nostradamus here. Don't don't take what I say to the bank necessarily, but it's something to think about, something to consider and, and form your own opinion on. Like Rick said, 
Right now, everybody's taking massive pricing. I had a client last year at the end of the year take 15% pricing in one spell swoop and supposedly didn't, didn't see any degradation in traffic, which shocked me. So everybody's taking pricing and, and obviously, you know, if things go down and we get into promo wars or something in two years, that's always a possibility, but it's unlikely you're just going to drop your pricing on your menu boards. It's not very likely. So, you know, everybody's taking pricing because labor's up, utilities are up, cost of sales is up, everything is up. Well, what happens when those start to normalize a little bit? You could expect potentially EBITDA to just skyrocket. If your margins are, are compressed by seven or eight percent in the short term, I don't think anybody expects that to last five years. I think people believe it's going to be another year or two till things really start to, to ease up a little bit. And what happens when they do? Do you want to buy a business then when the EBITDA margins explode by 8%? Or do you want to potentially take a harder year or two? Don't breach any covenants or anything with your lender, but um, buy right, obviously. Don't just blatantly overpay for anything. But uh, I think there's an argument to be made that you'd better, rather buy now, hold for a year or two, and and rather be in the business when those margins explode rather than acquiring when they do. If you throw a, let's just use the 8% margin example. If this is six times multiple, then you can expect to pay 50% more almost for those businesses when that happens. So look at, I'm not predicting anything, but it's something to think about. You know, I've mentioned it to a few people. It seems to hit home and, you know, makes them think a little bit. Cause I doubt if you, if you raised a, you know, Taco Bell example, you're, your taco to $1.69, it's unlikely you're going to drop it back to $1.39, you know, in a couple of years when commodities come down. Um, one example I hear, I'm not an airplane expert and I'm surely not a, an airline industry expert, but I think it was back in 08, at least some of the stuff I've read when they started throwing baggage fees in there just to help the airlines get through that that industry. I think I've heard That's that. Sucks. Month. Gas went back down. Did they ever get rid of that? No, gas was five bucks in 08. And then it dropped at $2 the next year and we still have baggage fees. So, you know, something to think about in a couple of years when, when costs, hopefully, I say hopefully come back down, you know, EBITDA could explode and, and restaurants could be looking really pretty by then. Something to consider. Yeah, good point for sure. I'll pause for a second and look at a couple of questions here that have been asked. Have we had any APAs? walked away from because the bid ask spread the answer to that i believe unless you guys cut in and tell me opposite differently i believe the answer is that it is no and we've worked out all of those so far within our limited examples over the past six months and then one was how would you determine the value or selling price and determine when the time to sell a franchise company is well i mean the first question is an easy plug for unbridled or an advisor like us you probably want to ask someone who values restaurant companies and franchise companies every day it is very dangerous to hear people talk about multiples and then to not know whether that multiple is applied to a post GNA EBITDA or an EBITDA with no GNA, uh, how to handle upcoming CapEx, whether a deal has real estate or not, and if so, what brand and what locations of the country or size of the transaction. And so when you might hear someone say, oh, it's worth five times EBITDA, take your EBITDA times five. Just yesterday, I was talking with probably a 30-unit operator who's a friend of mine, and he was uh, telling me what he thought the value of his business was on a multiple EBITDA. And then when I asked a couple of questions, he hadn't reduced it for GNA. It was just store-level EBITDA. I'm like, oh, I mean, like, golly, man. So you just got to be careful. And it's really easy. I was just, I'll give you another example. I was sitting at a wedding in Birmingham, Alabama on Saturday. And I have a family friend who comes to me and owns a dental practice and asks me, 
it, he says, well, my accountant tells me my EBITDA is a million dollars. Let's just use an example of a million dollars. And so that means my business must be worth five million. What do you say, Rick? Well, I'm not in this business, but I asked him, I said, well, what do you pay yourself? And he goes, a million five. And I said to him, okay, so you're telling me you've got a business that generates two and a half million dollars in EBITDA without you, but a million dollars of EBITDA with your salary. Well, if you were replaced, would they hire someone in there at a million and a half dollars? No, probably 250 or 300,000. Well, to me, that business does $2.2 million of EBITDA, not a million dollars of EBITDA. And to me, your business might be worth 10 or $11 million, not $5 million. Guess what? I was the most popular guy at the wedding. I mean, to make a case in point. So I think you want to be careful about hearing what you hear in the marketplace and actually getting an expert's opinion on it. We hear like there's a lot of services out there that we respect and use and believe they give great information. But whenever you see multiple comps, be hesitant. There's a service out there that shows Taco Bell comps multiples between six and a half and seven. That's just so far off. So I have to assume other brands are, are going to be a couple of turns off potentially as well. So if you really want to know the value of your business, just just call an advisor who, who does it every day and hopefully us, but um, call an advisor you trust that can give you a real answer and be careful about people that are blowing smoke up your butt just to sign you up for two years. So, you know, hire someone that you, that you think is, is telling you the way it is, especially with the changes in the market right now. If someone gives you a valuation on trailing through July of 2021, well, I'd ask some questions. But it's probably lower now, to be perfectly frank. Even if it's a year in 2021 with the changes that we've had in the first and second quarter. And, and if you're a lender who's listening right now, you know, I would kind of also say, you know, as you build, like talk to your risk departments and your credit guys about how to price these deals from a debt perspective, we have to be looking at the entirety of 2022, not just the first four or five periods. And so that's kind of goes into the comment of the optimism that most of the franchisors were exuding at the conventions in the last couple of weeks. So that has to be a part of determining how much you're going to lend. Tell me negative you. comps. We expect negative comps potentially for another period or two, but it's not. We don't expect that through 2022. We expect that to start easing up in P6 or so. You know, yeah. every business is a little different, but the yeah. negative comps right now, don't just assume, well, heck, I got to annualize that for all of 2022. You, you probably don't. Maybe you do look at the business specifically, but it's likely starting around P6, you'll start comping at least flat to last year. So obviously it's business specific, but but if you see a couple bad periods right now, don't expect that to just be all of this year. It, it's very unlikely will be. On to Tony, due diligence. What are we seeing? Any surprises going on in due diligence right now and some of the deals you're working on? So not a lot of surprises per se. What I would say is, you know, when, if you would ask me that four months ago to six months ago, when we were going into Q4 with COVID threats looming, it was really difficult to get real estate diligence pinned down to a reasonable time frame that we're used to. Since then, we've seen everything kind of let up. I think that co- correlates and coincides with just labor coming back in those businesses, number one. Number two, everyone kind of easing up COVID restrictions. So now we can say confidently with our timeline on deals that we're kind of back on track on estimates. That's one thing. Number two, I have seen at least lenders wanting to see through numbers a bit more than I have in other deals, which is, you know, listen, that's understandable given that, think about it this way, to Derek's point too that you just mentioned, May and April were arguably the two best months of all of QSR history, like hands down. I mean, the, we've got clients who are up 30 and 40%. That's just a massive, massive increase. And so I think, again, all roads lead back to the second half of the year, but I think deals will kind of firm up. Lending community will kind of 
get their arms around what steady state EBITDA looks like and things will be much smoother. But from a blocking and tackling perspective on real estate ops, diligence, providers and lenders, it's been steady as she goes as if, you know, COVID never happened. So I think we're, I feel really good about that. Makes it a lot easier for guys like us to get our hands around timetables and to commit to clients on something that we know we can get done. Whereas in Q3 and Q4 of last year, real estate could have taken two or three times longer, right, to get done. Phase ones and phase twos. That's my read. Tony, you see a little bit of a pace quickening with some of these folks, the real estate diligence, the franchisors, the lenders, just because maybe there's not as much deal flow this year. And doesn't that feel nice? Doesn't that feel nice a little bit? I mean, I'm not saying it's like gone from eight months or seven months to two months. It's maybe gone from seven months to five and a half months or something or six months, right? I think that's fair, right? I mean, listen, when when a franchisor keeps the same headcount and they had to 2X the amount of deals they were processing for last year, you know, that was a tough pill to swallow versus now where that same team is managing a volume that they're really kind of sized for, let's just say, it makes a big difference, right? Whereas before we were doing transactions last year, especially late last year, you almost had to get on an airplane and go to the corporate office to get the right amount of attention, right? But now it's a lot easier to get eyeballs on the right deals. Things are moving as they should be. You know, Derek and I are very maniacal about our processes that we run in these deals. And so it's nice having some reciprocity when you're trying to reach out to somebody who's in control of a transaction that you're running. So for us, it's been it's been nice to be back in the saddle more fully. I'll answer this next one because we're maybe a question or two behind on time. Timing from deal start to completion. You know, maybe we've sped up a little bit because resources into to like an example be you have a surveyor who's going to go survey a piece of real estate or, you know, or, or, or a business. Well, he's got like 75 other restaurants he's got to go survey at the end of last year. Now he only has 15. So instead of taking three weeks to get the report back, it might take a week and a half. The total time to start a deal to end it, it looks to me at the moment to be about, you know, six months from the time, like you say, down bridal, let's start a process to the time the deal closes. And there is a variability between like maybe five and a half and seven months. And some, and if it gets longer than that, the reasons why it would get longer is if there's a, let's say there is a new franchisee coming into a brand and there's a training requirement of some kind that may take an extra 60 days before the franchisor will actually prove the transaction. And we go through this with our clients, right? Because if you look at a, a stretch number of offers here and one of them is, or two of them are from people outside of the system, we want to know how the system feels about the training requirements prior to closing and what effect that has on timeline, especially in an environment that's changing so much because, you know, time kills all deals, right? So these are things that could add add extra time. But otherwise, I'd say maybe think of a six-month process as probably being pretty reasonable right now, a little faster than maybe it's been in the last six months or so. What about how are lenders looking at QSR right now? Open question for both of you guys. You know, what do you think? I'll jump in. This is my perspective. Lenders have been calling and following up with me more than they ever have which to me, I'm not anything special. I think they're looking for deal flow just like everyone else. So to me, that's kind of been a little bit of a leading indicator that there has been a a drop off in deal flow versus 2021. But the communications I've had with them collectively as a whole, I don't wanna speak about unique situations. There's been a lot of interest. They're still trying to put money to work. They're still bullish on these brands. You know, there might be a little bit more discerning on certain brands that haven't performed as well or been beaten up or are affected by a commodity price in a certain area more than others. But broadly speaking, the level of interest is still there. I think if you are a buyer right now, you're actually sitting in a very nice position 
when it comes to the lending community, because I think there's fewer opportunities being chased and you have a little bit more leverage than maybe you had, you know, eight months ago, six months ago, which runs a little bit counter to, I think, what the perception out there is that, hey, there's all this, all these challenges out there. But at the end of the day, lenders need to put cash to work, right? Regardless of what might happen in a year or two within, with interest rates. And keep in mind, a lot of this, a lot of these loans have a floating mechanism built into them too, right? So again, they just got to put capital to work and they're still quite bullish on this space. I've heard a lot. I've heard some whispers, you know, I've heard some whispers about potentially some banking groups, you know, reducing the amount of lease adjusted leverage that they put on these businesses in this environment, about maybe 25 basis points or so. I haven't seen it on a wide scale. I think there's some talk about that. The problem, like, for, for the lenders who want to be more conservative, as Tony says, is, is just a lot of people in the space. I mean, my goodness, there are a lot of lenders in the space. So it's a supply demand thing, just like it always is. There's a lot of demand. So supply, you know, there's a lot of demand. So, okay, good question. Here's one. Listen to this one. Franchisors are increasing demands for many more new builds when approving a sale transaction, along with more onerous restrictions in their relationship agreements with financial buyers. And they may exercise a right of first refusal to control the buyer. Any real-time advice on how to handle these new hurdles? And will franchisors retreat from these demands if it chills deal flow as a result? What an awesome question. Like, <laughs> that is like a killer question. And as I read the question, I like, I know every word in between every word that he wrote, right? Because I've we've been living every, like, multiple deals that follow from the, this line of questioning. The one thing I will say, and then I mean, I guess maybe Derek, you're you're next on the list. So you know, both you guys think about an answer that you might you might think. I think there's a change brewing in some brands where performance isn't as strong. So the nature of this question is definitely related to one particular brand that is really you know it's pretty tough on the amount of new units and territories you must build to get their approval, and also maybe getting jumping in the right and waiving the right of first refusal, but exercising it. But in other brands, maybe in other brands and and two brands I can think of that maybe a little bit of the opposite is happening where franchisors are looking at the situation and they realize that performance has been soft and they're going to have to, you know, maybe slightly change their thinking and who they'll approve for these transactions in order to accommodate maybe an increased future potential of of franchisees that may sell and uh, maybe a, uh, what they perceive to be possibly a lack of buyers in those markets. You know, the equation goes both ways. But I'll let you take that, Derek. What will deals chill as a result if these new hurdles are introduced? What do you think? First of all, I agree with Rick. There are a couple brands out there that, that are softening their restrictions, not not increasing them simply yeah. because they're, they're looking to get really good operators in the market even if those operators happen to be a few states away. There are some brands that are getting real conscious on um, continuity with franchise or contiguous franchisee restrictions. Um, if you're two states away, they see that as too far away um, yeah. for you to operate this other market well. So I think you're seeing franchisors just wanting the best operator in the market right now. And if that means instead of on a 50 store deal, instead of 25 new builds, maybe they can only ask for 10, then then they're willing to, to look at that. You know, last year in 2020, most brands were doing so well. Those comps are going down a little bit. Some franchisors got in the middle of these deals, maybe a little more than, than most franchisees and, and advisors would prefer. And, and I think 
you know, franchisees were getting pretty upset at some things over the last year. And I would expect, you know, those franchisees, once they voice their opinion to the franchisor loud enough and potentially group together, I would expect some of those franchisor restrictions and requirements to maybe decrease a little bit. At the end of the day, this is my personal opinion. Once a franchisor gets something in their head, it's that way or the highway. So part of the question is any real-time advice how to handle these new hurdles. And my advice would be play as nice as you can, give them something they want. Hopefully you get something you want. And most of these brands, people build as many new stores that are going to be profitable as possible. It's, you know, print money in QSR the last couple of years, if you can build a good store. So why not build if you can? The question is really coming down to, can you build and still get a good return? I mean, is that market that's doing $2 million now, are there really, you know, another 30% of stores that can, that can handle 2 million or are those stores going to do one too? And, and that's the question buyers have to, and, and builders have to look at. Do I think franchisors will retreat a little bit if it starts to chill deal flow? Yes. The biggest thing I think that will make brands retreat is if, if it starts potentially killing deals and they start getting a lot of nasty grams from large franchisees and impactful franchisees. Because at the end of the day, I can do so much, but I'm not a franchisee. Brands don't have to answer to advisors, you know, within reason. They, they don't have to answer to us, but they do have to answer to their franchisee systems. So if deals start getting killed because of these restrictions and enhanced requirements, I would, if I was a franchisee, I would be upset and I would probably voice my opinion. That is when I think you will see these things start to chill a little bit and, and maybe drop back down to pre-COVID, a little more laissez-faire circumstances. These unification of the franchisees around this issue of we're getting onerous restrictions on transfers of my neighbor down the street and it impacts the value of my business. It takes a while for that to build up because the person who has to contest that really is the person who's selling their company, right? And the person who's selling their company is kind of on the way out. It's kind of like one of these things where it's almost like having the death tax. You know, you die and then all of a sudden on the way out, you get whacked with the tax you can't control. So it takes a while to unify in the franchise system and for people to realize it. We don't mention brands here, but I can tell you, if you're a franchisor that's listening to this, and I know franchisors do listen to this, you know, I just recommend being a little cautious because I can tell you with a cocktail and not in writing, I can tell you several brands that did and have taken crazy prolonged approaches to slapping huge development obligations on transfers. And it is true that in the short term, you've got people signed up for deals that they probably weren't fully expecting to, to adhere to. And in the longer term, it chases buyers away. And as a franchisor, what you need to realize is your brand ain't that special. Now, there are a couple of brands that really are special, but today's buyers, especially the financial buyers in the private equity and family office groups, they're looking at four different burger chain deals at the same time, realizing that they're only going to invest in one of them because of non-compete issues. They're not overly interested in your brand. I mean, that's the reality. They, they might like your brand, but they like other brands too. And so you, you have to realize that, uh, that what goes around comes around. Don't get too big for your britches asking too much because it may end up hurting you if your brand stops performing well down the road. You know, reasonability is always a good thing. Okay. Are buyers changing? How about the types of buyers? Are we changing in the market now? You know, we've had a lot of change in the P&Ls uh, in the last four or five months. What types of buyers are we seeing or are they the same? 
I don't know if they've changed a ton in the last year or two. I think it's been a, a steady shift to more financial buyers, private equity firms, family offices, people in a sense using other people's money in a way. When you talk to kind of, and I say mom and pop, I, you could be a hundred unit mom and pop, but franchisees have been in the system for 30 years and it's really their family money. I mean, it's their own personal guarantee on, on everything and and it's their livelihood and they've, they've built it from the stop. That's what I mean by mom and pop. That's not necessarily a one or two unit franchisee, but you know, they're the ones a little more cautious. It's, it's coming straight out of their pocket. It's coming straight out of their potential retirement or legacy for their family. And they're a little more hesitant to want to pay these big prices. The prices are so high right now that the people that it makes more sense for are the financial minded guys that, that in a sense are, are kind of using someone else's money and they owe them a return and it's not coming out of their own fully out of their own pocket. Obviously, they, they are incentivized properly. So I think you're seeing not really a shift, just a continual trend toward, you know, at these high prices, the, the, the people that can really afford them are going to be the financial buyers, the PE firms, the, the family office guys, and the, the mom and pop guy down the street. And just, he sees it and it's just not worth it to him. It's too big of a risk to potentially, you know, risk a, a great business with a low lease adjusted leverage, if he even has any debt potentially, to take on a bunch of new stores that are really high multiple and, and potentially crater some of his other business that he's worked so hard to build. So it's just naturally the, the pricing. Some of the, the more mom and pop guys are just kind of getting priced out of a lot of these deals. I think I only have a couple of deals in the last couple of years that that haven't gone to a more financial minded buyer. You know, I can only think of, of a couple off the top of my head. Well, you know, as conditions change though, and if they do worsen a little bit, I think you might see a shift in the type of financial buyer. So the financial buyer is the guy or girl sitting in a tall building in New York with the spreadsheet and a lot of money buying assets. You know, you have the mom and pop buyer who might be a 30 unit franchisee that's nearby to the stores for sale and has been in the business for 20 years. And then you might have someone in between who might be a two or 300 unit franchisee and in the brand or in a series of brands that might have money from those folks in New York City but also they have the capabilities and the know-how to come into a business that might be uh, declining in sales and profits and see through modeling out the next eight months of EBITDA. And might that type of group may be the group that probably zeroes in on this market in the next several three or four or five months, potentially, or if things maybe worsen. What do you think, Tony? Got a, got a thought? I mean, I think it's a little bit contrarian, but a lot of the it's a mindset shift, you know, Derek touched on it, Rick, you touched on it. I think the acquisition mindset of, I don't want to use the word mom and pop again, but kind of the, the legacy buyer, the one who's been in this business for a long time, second or third generation, it's a preservation and very strike price sensitive buyer. Whereas the financial types, they understand that there's still levers out there for them to pull to right size a deal. So maybe the multiple's still high, maybe there's some uncertainty, but cap rates are still great. So they can perform a sale lease back after the close and still effectively get a pretty good price deal, right? That's one thing. They might look at the current interest rate environment and say, my gosh, debt is cheap enough right now. Let me secure as much as possible because I'm going to keep growing and growing. And today it may be commodity risk, but tomorrow it could be financing risk with the interest rates expanding, right? So in their minds, it's there's always going to be some risk there, but let's just manage it and enter. Whereas I think some of the traditional entrepreneurs in this space are a little bit more hesitant to jump into something that's not maybe as perfectly set up as prior uh, decades in the past. So I've seen that quite a bit. I do think the family offices, if we do start seeing something more turbulent coming down the pike, 
the ones who are strategic buyers and very long-term oriented will see through all this and still be active. There's always going to be this fundamental layer of M&A that's going on. Certainly, they'll they'll adjust with multiples and what the environment around them is telling them is the right price. But I don't think they're as sensitive. I can think of you know two recent occasions where we had strategic buyers and all these concerns about what's happening around us just weren't there when you size them up versus other bidders. I think that's going to be more and more prevalent. I am personally, and I think most of us on the, me and Tony and Rick here, I'm laser focused on restaurants. If I'm researching something in the market, it's, it's restaurants, probably mostly QSR. The one thing about the private equity and family office guys, they look at everything. Those guys are doing M&A all over the place. So they, they still look at, at restaurants as a pretty good investment, I think, compared to a lot of other industries. Pretty stable, even if it seems unstable and, and EBITDA is dropping and going up, all this and that. Compared to a lot of other industries, it's fairly good. So they're looking at, at a lot more things than, than even me personally, or maybe most people even on this call would be looking at. So, you know, they see a six and a half time multiple and it's not that bad. A mom and pop who's used to paying four and a half, you know, five years ago, they're looking at that. They're probably also just focused on restaurants and even more specifically, probably just the brand that they're in really. And they're going to look at it as five years ago, I could buy for four and a half. And now it has to be six and a half. I'm going to wait for it to drop back to four and a half. Heck, it might never drop back to four and a half because five years ago, the PE and family office guys weren't in the business yet. You know, naturally speaking, those are the groups that have mostly pushed the multiples from four and a half to six and a half over the last five years. We might not ever go back to four and a half times multiples. And so in the brands that I'm talking about, obviously you can, you can find deals out there at that price, but you know, prices are up, I think, because of the massive influx of money into the QSR industry. You know, I, I can't predict the future. Maybe it goes back down in 10 years, maybe, it, but it might not because those guys might still be in the business. So that's another reason they're, they're pushing the prices up. And, and a lot of longtime guys are just like, man, I could have got it for two times less five years ago. And I'm going to hold out for the next time that happens. Well, guess what? It might not ever happen. I don't know. I agree. I would say another uh, unbridled indicator, if we could start coining that, is the amount of cold calls we have from private equity groups and family offices wanting to learn about this space, get on our CRM database, from where I sit is not let up. So at least two or three times a week, I'll get a random ping, a call, somebody saying, hey, I hear this is where the action is effectively. I want to learn more about it. Can you educate us? And we're still seeing that. Now, the day that that stops, we'll get on here and probably have a conversation about it. But I think that's still there. And that's uh, a big driver of, to Derek's point, the multiples being elevated for some period of time. And I just don't see that changing. I think the secret's out on restaurants. And I don't think it, I don't see it changing either. I really don't. A couple of, one question, a couple of comments, and then we'll have one final question we can all talk about. The, I saw a question come in here about family offices. So family office, think about a wealthy person, throws bucket uh, their money into a bucket, hires a team to invest the money. Typically, the money is held and owned by one family. Not always, but typically. And that one family doesn't typically have uh, an LP relationship where they have to sell the investments that they buy within a prescribed period of time. Long-term investors. Private equity funds, on the other hand, there's typically like a limited partner, a bunch of limited partners and a general partner. They raise money from multiple sources. The bucket's full of money from everybody. And then they go invest the money. It's usually a window that the money has to be returned to the limited partners. Maybe it's five years, maybe it's six years, maybe it's seven years, maybe it's four years. And so the private equity groups are very mostly, not always, but are mostly going to be interested because of the returns they're trying to generate in a short period of time. 
in deals that will yield, you know, multiples of what they bought it for. And it usually takes them away from restaurant companies. Not always, but usually. Family offices, on the other hand, have a longer time horizon. Look, like these gentlemen have been saying, at the restaurant business as a nice cash business that might be hitting a single or maybe running out a double and sliding into second base that could be accommodating to the other companies that they have over a longer period of time. Okay, a couple of things. Cap rates. I'll just quickly talk about cap rates. Cap rates move like interest rates do, but with a delay. A lot of a lot of real estate deals are probably looking to get fiercely completed right now, right? With lenders looking to back away or change their terms because the interest rates have been rising. Cap rates are still very, very competitive, but you can expect over the next three to six months, you'll see them moving in concert with the change in interest rates. And so it's a, it'll be a pretty big difference in the way real estate is priced as interest rates go up. And the supply demand factor is still there on small pieces of real estate purchases where people are doing 1031s and they're using all cash. But where there's a significant amount of financing, all it is is a spreadsheet model to look at what your returns are and, you know, that cash outflow and then the cash inflow. So you should expect cap rates to move like interest rates with a bit of a delay. And then also, um, I had another one. When you get into a changing environment, a shifting environment where there may or may not be certainty in the trailing 12-month financials and things may be going down a little bit. I think you start introducing these old old guy terms that I used to talk about when I was these guys' age, which is uh, earnouts and seller financing and mezzanine financing and some of these alternate ways to get a deal done between buyers and sellers. I don't expect we'll see a huge shooting of it right away, but it was a factor back in 08, 09, 10, and 11. And I think you're probably going to start seeing that happen a little bit where there's bid ask difference between what a seller wants and what a buyer will pay. It may take a little bit of time to get there, but we may see that in the back half of the year or next year if we hit a recessionary environment. The last question for the day, positive reasons to sell now. What's the reason why you would sell your company now? So just real quick, a lot of our clients have this mentality. They loved coming to work before COVID. They love their people, which they still do, but they loved coming to work before COVID. It was pretty stable. COVID hit. The last two years have been probably 20 years of stress on most of our clients. They made a lot of money. EBITDA was up. Pricing's really high, but it was really difficult. Grade them overnight. Now that that's all over, they're just kind of taking a step back saying, I have the money that I need probably for a few generations. And you know what? I'm going to enjoy it. You know, our average clients in their 60s, 70s, you know, we're not usually selling 35-year-old guys as company. That's not our, our bread and butter, what we normally do. So most guys are just, and gals are just saying, look, I, it's time for us to step back. There's a there's a new generation looking to own and and I'm tired. That is 90% of our clients in a way. You know, everybody's slightly different, but, you know, that's a pretty common sentiment. They're still super strong. I mean, they might not be as high as they were nine months ago, but they're still way higher than they were in 2019. So it's not like you missed the boat. Prices are still up there. I think that's right. I couldn't agree more. On a two-year comp basis, the business is still really attractive. It's uh, The exit point is still great. And I'm sure a lot of them never thought of making this kind of money off their business. That's one. Um, Derek talked about the micro, more of like the emotional and wear and tear on the mindset of these operators. But at a macro level, I mean, I don't have to list all the things that are sitting out there that are a little bit concerning, right? But there's a lot of things coming down the pike. And if if you're thinking about or considering a sale in the next three years, I think it'd be pretty wise of you to consider a sale now. And why would you try to see through possibly a recession, inflation, who knows what happens with Ukraine? I mean, I can go on and on, right? It could be a whole call in and of itself. 
But I think those are between the micro uh, reasons Derek mentioned and the macros I just had. I think it's pretty compelling reason to leave if you're considering retirement. Couldn't agree more. Guys, wonderful discussion. Thank you for everyone who joined in to watch. And for those of you who are listening on the Restaurant Boiler Room podcast, we'll be back at it here again soon. And uh, just so thankful for everyone in this industry, man. I just wish everyone the, the very best. Let's go get them. Let's make it the best customer experience that we can, store by store, property by property. Thank you guys so much. Thanks so much for entering the Boiler Room today. You can find our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Spotify. If you like these podcasts, please listen, rate, and review. I also encourage you to visit our website at www.unbridledcapital.com for the best franchise M&A and financial resources in the industry. Our website includes webinars, podcasts, videos, white papers, and a list of our past M&A transactions. Please note that neither Rick Ormsby nor Unbridled Capital Advisors, LLC, give legal, financial, or tax advice. These podcasts represent opinions that have been prepared for informational purposes only. We expressly disclaim any and all liabilities that may be based on such information, errors therein, or omissions therefrom.